Welcome to the See Her Speak podcast, episode 40. In this episode, I talk with my longtime mentor, Hugh Katz, about key findings from his lifetime of work on the language basis of reading, early detection of dyslexia, and on reading comprehension. It's so good to be back in the saddle recording this podcast for you, my dear listeners. What a year or three it's been. Thank you to you, parents, educators, SLPs, administrators. You're truly my heroes working to improve the lives of children, one child at a time. And look at you. You're taking your free time to listen to this podcast to learn more. Thank you. Thank you so much. So because of my long hiatus, podcast platforms thought that the podcast had wrapped, that it was over. But alas, I'm back and I truly appreciate you leaving a rating or even a review. It only takes a few minutes, but it means the world to me because that's how the podcast platforms will know that I'm back. Speaking of being back, it is my sincere apologies for the sniffing you may hear during this episode. It was a rookie mistake to record when I was stuffy. With all that said, let's get to my conversation with Hugh Katz. Don't forget to check out the website, www.seeherespeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content. I promise they're coming. Read a transcript of this podcast and others, access articles and resources that we discuss, and find more information about our guest. Cheers to a new year. Oops, I forgot to mention one more thing. I did something a little different with this podcast episode. Listen to the end, and I think you'll know what I mean. Hugh Katz, welcome to See Here Speak podcast. I'll have you start by introducing yourself. Uh, hi, I'm Hugh Katz. I'm a professor at Florida State University. Uh, it's, it only took like four years to get us together on this podcast, even though <laughs> I think we talk, you know, we talk quite a bit, but it's great to get you yeah, on the podcast. Yeah, we talk monthly, but haven't done a podcast yet. So. <laughs> That's right. Good. So now we're going to take those conversations to the listeners. So that'll be great. Um, one of my favorite topics is just thinking about how great it was being your student and back in Kansas. And when I was, when I started as your student, you were beginning data collection on the Iowa study, which is quite famous in our field. I thought you could tell the listeners about the Iowa study. Yeah, that was such a great time, uh, you know, in my career to have all the data that we had out of the Iowa study and, and to have you and your fellow students. I mean, it was a, it was one of the highlights of my career with, uh, uh, with that project. But the project has an interesting history. Uh, Bruce Tomlin, who was at, at University of Iowa, had a contract from NIH to uh, estimate the uh, incidence of spe uh, specific language impairments or what we call more often developmental language disorders now, DLD. Uh, and uh, he tested 7,000 kids in, uh, in various schools around the state of Iowa uh, in an epidemiologic study, meaning that he did, had a representative sample uh, and he had asked me before he started this study if I had early measures of uh, a pre-reading measures, if you will. And so I, I gave him a phonological awareness and a rapid naming uh, measure. And uh, they looked at this in kindergartners. It was broken over two years because there were so many kids. And, and uh, during the second year, I accidentally ran into him. Uh, at University of Kansas where I was, but he was there visiting another unit. And I didn't even know he was there. <clears throat> and I ran into him in the hallway and we got started talking about this. And I said, Bruce, why don't we follow up uh, on these kids? And, and that uh, you know, uh, unplanned meeting led to 10 years worth of NIH funding and uh, a huge amount of data that we were able to, 
to analyze and write papers off of. It was, it was just uh, one of the lucky things in my career. Oh, and it's also funded my doctoral program. So I got really lucky that way too. <laughs> I, when I contacted you, you said, we have a grant in and I think it'll be funded hopefully next year. And then I waited a year and it was funded. So I was able to come in on that Iowa study. And when I came in, you had collected data for kindergarten, second and fourth graders okay, and had started the data collection for eighth, 10th to 12th. So right. it was uh-huh. it was a great time because we were able to analyze the data from kindergarten, second and fourth, but then we were collecting data. So I got lots of great experience doing both the analysis and the um, you know creation of measures and data collection processes. But that data, having a look at longitudinal data like that was quite amazing. Uh, what were some of the main findings you remember from that data set? Yeah, that my part, it was a, it was a group uh, endeavor. There were seven or eight investigators on the Iowa project and I was the one that was primarily interested in reading and its relationship to uh, language impairment. So I, I think one of the more important findings from that study had to do with a relationship between dyslexia and specific language impairments. Um, there, we had known for some time that was a relationship there, but we had an epidemiologic sample, which means that was representative of, of kids across the country. And so we could estimate the incidence of uh, the overlap. So we found that that if you took a group of kids that were identified as having uh, SLI or developmental language disorder, about a third of those kids qualified uh, as having dyslexia. Made a made a definition of having dyslexia. You found it. You find a bit more in a clinical sample because to get for kids to get to the clinic, they typically have more severe uh, language problems, and those kids will have more cases of, of dyslexia. Or the other way around, uh, if we identify kids on the basis of dyslexia, we find about 20% of those kids have severe enough language impairments that they could be referred to as having a DLD. Most kids with dyslexia have some language difficulties, which contributes to their, uh, uh, their difficulties in, in word reading. So that was one of the, one of the projects that we had. Another um, uh, analyses we did, and I think you helped on that, was we, uh, we identified a group of kids that had problems in comprehension but didn't have problems in word reading. They're called poor comprehenders or have a specific comprehension deficit. And there, there had been some studies of these kids, but we had the largest sample to date of, of, of those children. And using this simple view, that is that uh, a reading comprehension is a, a combination of word reading and language comprehension. We proposed that if they didn't have decoding problems or word reading problems, they would have problems in language comprehension. So we gave that group of kids a battery of, of language measures. And by that time, they were in eighth grade, and we looked at their kindergarten, second, fourth, and eighth grade performance on, on those measures and found, indeed, uh, poor comprehenders had a history of language problems. But the interesting thing that we didn't pay attention to at the time when we wrote that paper, because we kind of had our blinders on, was that the language problems they had weren't nearly as severe as their reading comprehension problems. So these kids were maybe one and a quarter standard deviations below the mean in reading comprehension, but were only maybe two thirds to three quarters of standard deviation below in their language abilities, suggesting that there was something else going on besides language problems that was leading these kids having comprehension deficits. And 
we went on and, and have looked at that, thought about that uh, further that uh, you'll probably get to in a minute with, with some of the other studies. Um, the other, the other uh, project that we had that was one that I'd been interested in for a number of years, and that was early identification of children with either word reading problems or reading comprehension. And since we had such a large sample, we actually had a subsample of those 7,000 kids. Um, we had good data in kindergarten. And so what we wanted to do was look to see what combination of factors in kindergarten uh, would predict performance in, in word reading at, uh, at second grade, or I think we looked at reading comprehension at second and fourth grade or so forth. And uh, we identified a number of, of factors that we could put together and it would tell you the probability that a child would have a word reading problem. And it was one of the first studies that, that looked at it in this particular way, a probabilistic notion of having a, a, a reading in, impairment because some kids are more at risk than other, other kids. And it was that study that kind of led uh, to uh, other work that I've done since then and led to other, other people in the field starting to look at, at these probabilistic models of, of, uh, of reading outcome. So much I appreciated about that article. Um, and one of them was just this idea that you, you gave a link, it was to a spreadsheet. So they could give, clinicians could readily give those assessments and you intentionally had you know assessments and data they could collect readily plug it into the spreadsheet and from the algorithm, you could then determine for each child what percent risk they had of having future reading problems. Right, so right. that, you know, just to get really to that nitty gritty for the listeners, you would plug the data in and say, you know, this child A has a risk 0.8 chance versus the other child who 0.3. So you had to then think more probabilistically too, in terms of where do I even have the cut point? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's right? the reason we did it so that we would have a during cup point. Yeah, you're right. I'd forgotten about that, Tiffany. Uh, uh, Mark Fay actually created the the X, Excel file. That's what it was. It was just yeah. an Excel file yeah. at the time. We, I mean, it, we weren't particularly sophisticated, uh, but uh, uh, I we had uh, several hundred. We actually published that, but we got several hundred emails requesting uh, additional mm-hmm. uh, information, and they wanted that Excel file that they used to to estimate probability. So was that 2001? Yeah, 2001. And you know, that's, that's probably the most cited study that, mm-hmm. that one of the most cited mm-hmm. studies I have, and I think is still the most cited study in that journal. Yes, that's uh, right. And it and won article really resonated to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. And that work has really led to what we've done together too on thinking about prevention in our recent article in the Reading League Journal. Uh, let's talk about that a bit. Yeah. That, you know, the reason I was, I've been interested in inter, inter, early identification is the idea that we'd like to, to address the problems uh, of a reading disability uh, prior to all the negative consequences associated with it, that, that having a reading problem uh, is more than a reading problem. And if you just think about uh, a child coming to school, it's had a perfectly normal early development, you know, socially gets wrong with other kids, is physically... A, uh, agile or whatever, they get to school and all of a sudden they can't learn to do what all the other kids in the class are doing. And it, it can be very frustrating. It can lead to 
uh, problems in self-concept, anxiety, uh, kids start, you know, acting out. Um, I mean, I, I know some of this personally because reading problems run in my family and I wasn't a particularly good reader in the early grades. And I know I, I was disruptive in class and I, I, I still have a photo of me in my first grade uh, class and I'm in the back row with the girls because I was causing so much trouble up, up front with, with the, the boys in the classroom. They tried to put me in a separate space in the classroom. But uh, it, uh, uh, but kids, fortunately, I didn't have the problem, but other kids go on and, you know, uh, engage in truancy, delinquency, so forth. So um, I, I know that you resonated to that. And, and so you and I talked about a, a, a paper that we ended up writing that uh, um, argued for the prevention of, of reading disabilities rather than the diagnosis. And the, the reason for that was that that there's now most states in the country have passed legislation to address dyslexia. And the focus tends to be on the diagnosis of dyslexia, on the testing for dyslexia rather than the prevention of dyslexia. And by prevention, I'm, I, I don't mean, you know, uh, preventing the neurological factors that might underlie it. I'm talking about preventing the reading difficulties and the and the, uh, uh, the negative consequences. And the, uh, uh, there is good evidence that we can reduce the reading problems and, and uh, prevent some of those secondary uh, consequences if we get in there early enough and uh, do the identification and, and intervention. Yeah, I really relate to that because my son, one of my sons, well, we have a family history too, but one of my sons is having difficulty. I know I've talked to you about that and going, you know, with what I know very early on in early childhood, getting some of those pre-reading measures and also just going to those IEP meetings. I tell the uh, people in the IEP meeting, I'm the keeper of the self-esteem. So I'm really working at home to counter the negative uh, feelings that are inevitable, even in a very good situation with yeah. good intervention it's still like you said the most the formative experience they have in education so just making sure they have you know outside interests that he has outside interests that you know he's getting what he needs uh, but I, you know I was involved in the passing of the dyslexia law here and and it's really it's been I think a, a real study of how a law can have this real effect just across the board because to really get in you know get good early identification there's so many factors involved right so you have to have first you have to then evaluate what are you doing for intervention what are you doing at the curriculum level for word reading anyway so it's like the whole curriculum has to be revised then thinking about what measure you're using and then thinking about how you're going to analyze that data so let's talk about what's involved in this early identification of dyslexia what are the many aspects to consider yeah, well, first, I mean, I, I, it's, it's, uh, you make a really good point about that the law was intended to uh, identify kids with dyslexia, but I actually talked to somebody that's a, that's, uh, uh, is a prominent person in the field of dyslexia, and he sees the law more as a general education law because of the impact it's going to have on, on, on uh, reading instruction uh, in uh, uh, in the classroom, because if, if with, with inappropriate reading instruction, uh, we're going to end up with all the kids looking like they have reading problems. And so to, to not overwhelm the, the, uh, the MTSS uh, uh, 
program or special education or so forth, you're going to have to have good uh, a good instruction in to begin with. Um, but you know, if we go to what's involved in early identification, the best indicator of risk for dyslexia, and the way that I define dyslexia, uh, is uh, as a a severe and persistent word reading problem. Right. Uh, I think a definition like that works better within the school system. We don't have to think about, about the neurological basis uh, uh, of it or, or uh, pinpoint a particular cognitive deficit associated with it. It's a severe and persistent problem in word reading that's unexplained on the basis of instruction. So the child has been provided with very good instruction. Um, uh, like at the peers in the classroom, but after some period of time, the, so it, it is persistent, then we could identify that child as having dyslexia, right? But my argument is we don't wait to identify dyslexia. We try to prevent it early on by looking at kids' initial performance and like uh, learning the letters of the alphabet, the sounds of the, of the, uh, of the letters uh, when they first begin learning to read words and decoding words, how are they doing there as well? That's not enough because it takes a while for kids to spread themselves out in their word reading ability because there's a lot of factors that can lead to being uh, on the low end of the distribution, if you will, in word reading or in letter naming that are not predictive of later reading performance, all right? So they're past, uh, a literacy experience. So if a child comes to school without much literacy experience, they're not gonna know as many letters. It's gonna take them a little bit longer to gain proficiency on something like Dibbles or, or Ames web measures there. Uh, and they're gonna perhaps look to be at risk, right? Same thing if we look at word reading. Uh, initially, word reading has a floor effect to it. There's lots of kids down there at the bottom, but with time they spread themselves out. So to, to uh, not wait, we don't wanna wait until the end of first grade, which it might be before we can get something that looks more like a normal distribution in word reading to identify the kids at the bottom. We can look to other factors that might be predictive of, of their later outcome. One of them you already mentioned, and I did too, family history. So uh, there's a 50% chance that if, if your sibling has uh, dyslexia, that they're, uh, that they're gonna have that condition as well. So we ought to be paying attention to that early on. That should be part of the, of the intake. So when parents sign kids up for school, we, we would wanna find something about their, their family history. Uh, we'd also wanna know something about their language development. Uh, we've known for uh, many years that uh, one of the precursors to having a reading problem is is a developmental uh, language problem. So kids that are late to talk, kids that, that show some early problems with grammar um, are gonna be at, at a heightened risk. Not all those kids end up with dyslexia, but that's an additional factor that we wanna look at. And then beyond that, um, we're, we uh, uh, can think about phonological factors, phonological awareness, we've known that, that's part of, this, part of the so-called science we're reading now, everybody's attention's directed at that um, and, and most kids who have problems in learning to read words have some difficulties in, in phonology, but not all. So our relationship between phonological awareness and word reading has primarily been based on group studies. 
that have studied kids who have reading problems or at risk for reading problems and kids uh, that don't. And when you look at the mean scores, you find out that there's a big difference there and led us to believe that phonological awareness, the phonological memory is an important uh, contributor to word reading uh, ability. But when you look at it a case-based way, we find that that not all kids who have phonological difficulties, pretty severe phonological difficulties, end up having word, word reading problems. And not all kids who have word reading problems have phonological difficulties, right? So it is an important uh, factor to look at, but we also have to uh, uh, look at other factors beyond that. And there's a number of models now that, that attempt to uh, you know, look at multiple factors related to uh, identification uh, of risk. Uh, Yakov Petcher and I have one that's called cumulative risk and resilience model that talks about risk factors beyond phonological awareness like oral language ability, um, um, uh, attention, uh, visual factors. There's some indication that, that a smaller subgroup of kids that end up with dyslexia have visual problems. And then we also uh, include uh, environmental factors like trauma. And that's an interesting one because, because in the past, we've ruled out kids as having a, uh, a learning disability right, or, or dyslexia on the basis of environmental factors. Right? But many of the kids who have uh, problems, uh, environmental factors like poverty or trauma, also have some of the other things that, that can lead to uh, poor outcomes, and it's a combination of the trauma in addition to the phonological, oral language, visual problems that are leading to the, the poor outcomes. So, so we've put the emphasis back on that so that we don't under-identify, which we are doing at the moment, we're under-identifying kids with poverty as having learning disabilities, uh, because we're assuming that it has something to do with the with the, with the environment, but there's a, there's a substantial portion of those kids who also have other factors that contribute to it. And then on the other side, we have factors that, that will uh, limit the impact of the, of the risk factors. And, and you mentioned it yourself in, in a supportive parent being one of those that, that uh, helps with, uh, encourages the child to, to um, uh, to you know, not take a negative attitude toward reading in, in, in school. Supportive teachers. I remember you tell me about your son's teacher who, who, uh, uh, what was it? Your son came home and said, "What was? Tell me." Tell said, oh yeah. So he said, um, "I really like my new teacher. It's his first grade teacher." And I said, "Why?" And he goes, "Well, she says she doesn't care how we do as long as we try." And I said, "Well, haven't all your teachers said that?" He goes, "No, but she really means it." <laughs> <laughs> She just really wants us to try. Uh, so that growth mindset for sure is being modeled by her, which I think is, is so great. And, um, you know, I think what you've talked about here in terms of what's involved, um, you know, even thinking about the definition of dyslexia and what you mentioned about how we sometimes have excluded certain kids. And I think it also makes me think a lot about how we do research versus what's done in the schools, because in research, we have the privilege, I guess you would say, or maybe even the edict that we do need to exclude certain kids because we're really trying to get to a specific research question and analyze what is like, what's the impact of this particular ability on reading 
aside from, let's say, poverty. So we have that. But then if you take the science of reading and extrapolate that to practice, we, you know, in practice, you don't have that. You can't really exclude kids and you shouldn't, right? Because they, all the kids need help. So I love what you're doing with Yaakov looking at all of these factors, because you're saying we're not excluding anyone. We're actually taking all of the children, looking at all the variables associated like phonological processing. And I know a big article, a book chapter that influenced our thinking a lot early on was that one by Hollis Scarborough, the uh, beautiful hypothesis, ugly facts. And I love that, right? And you're getting into those ugly facts of this is what it is. Like we have to look across and even defining dyslexia, you know, we have in the past defined it by certain characteristics about cognitive processes, but I love your definition to say, it's just word reading problems that are persistent. That's it. That's the core. And unexplained. Unexplained, Unexplained, right? Because it can't just be poor instruction. I mean, you can't have, you know, it's not that. It's that you have a difficulty in word reading that needs to be addressed. And I've, I've done, I know you've done a lot of teacher trainings too, but recently I was doing one and one of the uh, educators said, I don't think I've had a child with dyslexia in my, you know, under you know, my uh, special ed umbrella before. And I said, well, do you have someone who's a learning qualifies for services as learning disabled word reading? And she said, oh yeah, I have a ton of those. (laughs) And I said, well, those are children with dyslexia. I mean, it's been so co-opt, I think, and historically used by the medical field that one of the kind of big parts of the law is that schools can now use the word dyslexia, acknowledge dyslexia. And so it's a shift, right? To think, what right. is dyslexia? It's not mystical in that way. It is a yeah. word reading problem that we have to address considering all of these big components. So I yeah. appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. that aspect. I, I think that's, that's, that's one of the major problems that uh, uh, school systems going, are going to have to work with is how do you operationally define dyslexia? And we, we offered uh, some suggestions on that in a paper in the journal Learning Disabilities recently to to kind of address to that. And, you know, it wasn't purely my, there's other people around the world that have been addressing this for some time and, and have been concerned about the kind of the medical based definition of dyslexia was, was making it harder for it to, to be operationalized in, in school systems. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so then we, you know, we've been working about this, thinking about, you know, early identification of dyslexia, but never lost that, um, you know, desire to do more work in the language basis of reading. So then we were able to move forward when I was an assistant professor and you were in Kansas and then moved to Florida State. We worked on the LARC study, which was another opportunity to follow kids longitudinally with even more measures and a tighter timeline. So we followed them from pre-K to grade three. So five years each year, we followed them and LARC stands for Language and Reading Research Consortium that we uh, involved, you know, uh, I think 14 investigators total. Let's talk about what are some of the major findings from that study as related to what we did in the Iowa study and, and even uh, around word reading and listening comprehension. Yeah, yeah, that was that was another great opportunity. I mean, you know, when you when you're uh, you know you look back at career as your career as you move forward, these these coincidences that just you know come about, and and uh, you know we had no idea that what that study was going to lead to. I mean, you you say it was short term. We still have colleagues of ours that's that are true. following those kids. And I think you're involved in, in some <laughs> of that are. work. So yeah, that's right. It was we a five-year study, but it's now up to 10 years. Yeah, yeah. that that was interesting. IES was going to uh, uh, fund uh, 
uh, five different groups of researchers to, to uh, study reading comprehension and, and look at uh, ways to try to improve reading comprehension. They were concerned about the low performance of, of kids uh, on, on either national, the NAEP, or on state exams and so forth, and, and uh, had done a pretty good job of improving word reading uh, instruction through No Child Left Behind. You know, people talk about No Child Left Behind uh, being a failure. Well, you know, it may not have changed what some people hoped it would change, but it certainly changed uh, reading and uh, word reading instruction in many school districts. I know here in Florida, with uh, Reading First and Early, uh, Early Reading First, uh, mm -hmm. it uh, made a big difference in the, the word reading ability of, of kids. And I know, you know, uh, Tiffany, when we were working on the Iowa project, I think you'll remember uh, us looking at the uh, at the performance on on uh, word reading tests that had been normed before and after yes. um, the uh, uh, no uh, no child left behind and what a difference there was on those scores. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. It leads it leads to Larkin that way too because the failure came from the fact that they said, well, reading scores didn't improve, but the reading scores were reading comprehension. Right. Not word yes, reading. Exactly. And as we know, that's just word reading's one part of reading comprehension. So right. you can't address one part and expect for those outcomes yeah. to change. And so that also, I think, led to the Institute of Education Science saying, let's do this initiative called Reading for Understanding. And yeah. I remember Shelley saying, we need speech language pathologists to be a part of this. So it was nice to have that language aspect from our angle, uh, yeah. focusing on younger children. And, and I remember too, those projects, a lot of uh, people were really interested when they when they said reading comprehension people went in with proposals that were junior high and high school because they're like well that's when comprehension matters yeah. and we came in and said but wait hold on from a language speech language pathologist perspective we know and the work that you've done on Iowa that the language basis starts before so we had you know a reading comprehension grant that started in pre-k which I think yeah, was mind-boggling right. for some people yeah, right yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it well, because it, it involved not only following kids longitudinally, but it involved also creating an a, a classroom-based intervention in language yeah. comprehension and doing a randomized control trial all in five years, which was basically yeah. like you know four or five R one. So it was it was really challenging. But wow, we learned so much from it. What is the yeah. most? What are, so, what did so, you take? Well, from we learned. It? A, I mean, learned quite a bit from it. I mean, I I, I think we had we had data longitudinal uh, data. Uh, looking at, uh, at, at the development of comprehension and uh, looking at factors that contributed to reading comprehension. So we did some nice studies that supported kind of the simple view of, uh, of reading. Uh, we also had some nice studies that uh, were done looking at uh, second language uh, learners and uh, what factors predicted their performance. One group uh, um, uh, in Lida and in uh, uh, Shelley and in Arizona uh, had a sample that that allowed us to look at, at those kids and and whether their their Spanish language abilities predicted their English language reading and and I still have a doc student that's analyzing some of that that data so that was a, a wonderful data set the the other part I thought was the intervention program like you said uh, we put together a a whole year's worth of, of intervention materials uh, that uh, you know, what we didn't realize at first how how unique it was in terms of that they were centered around uh, content. So we had soil 
science or whatever it was. And then there was another one around animals. And, and, and there was some narrative uh, text in there as well. And we worked on uh, things like text structure and uh, comprehension monitoring and vocabulary and, and, and a number of different things. And that curriculum now is being uh, used in, in other studies as, as well. Yeah, I'm, I actually, and we have those, that's online for free. Right. I can link it in the podcast resources, but that curriculum, which is a full year, full classroom curriculum for pre-K, K, first and second and third, uh, it has, as you mentioned, two expository text units, animals and earth materials, and two fiction, fiction and folk tales. And uh, I, I continued on with Mindy Bridges and Shane Piasta, and we now are using the strong efficacy data from the classroom instruction. And we, led by Mindy Bridges, uh, created a tier two version of that. So small groups who have failed language screenings. And now we're running a randomized control trial to look at how that improves uh, language skills in first graders as the starting point. And so, yeah, yeah we are great. continuing that on. Yeah. yeah that but you're right. Great. The content's critical to that. Yeah. And then the, the other thing I think we learned, not only in our group, but in the, the other groups, is just how hard it is to change performance on uh, reading comprehension uh, standardized measures. You know, that we've been concerned with trying to improve performance on the NAEP or on state exams. That's a big push by state districts to try to improve their performance on those exams. And I know speech pathologists want to do things that are going to improve performance on the on uh, some of the standardized tests of reading comprehension that we we use. And I think that the LARC study uh, solidified it for me is that it's just near impossible to do that in the short run, that we had some of the best people in the country with backgrounds in, in reading comprehension, trying to improve reading comprehension. And, and very few of the projects got a got a, uh, any sort of improvement on standardized reading tests. We did get some, they were small, uh, but uh, it didn't mean we didn't have effects. We actually did get effects in components of, of, of reading uh, in our comprehension monitoring and our, and our narrative uh, comprehension. Uh, we got, we got uh, impacts, but on those, uh, on, on those measures, we didn't. And you know, I, I think it's where we've gone wrong in thinking about reading comprehension. It's, it's the most complex thing that, that uh, you or I do on a daily basis. Right? Maybe some of our stats that we might do, but, but most people out there, it's the most complicated thing, thing you do it. And to think that you can reduce it down to a, to a single test and then, and then do something in the short term to make somebody better at that right, is, is unrealistic. And you know, I thought a lot about why it is that, that we think that way. And, I, and I, I believe it has something to do with the fact that we talk about uh, reading comprehension in the same breath that we talk about phonological awareness, phonics, and fluency, these more skill-based type activities or, or abilities, if you will, that, that are teachable and they're teachable in the short period of time. And they're very different than reading comprehension. And I, I think what happened was that, that one of the major things is that people have misrepresented the findings of the National Reading Panel into this five big ideas notion, right? Well, there's not five big ideas. There was one really big idea and 
two or three small ideas. Right? Yep. And, and that, that, that when you realize that you realize that, that, uh, you know, we can change these things, but changing one's ability to understand texts such that you can understand, you know, uh, multiple texts requires much more than working on, on uh, skills that may, may underlie it. Certainly working on word reading. Most kids that have comprehension problems have word reading problems. So working on that is going to improve it. Um, you can also teach kids to be more strategic about their, about their reading. That's going to improve their comprehension. Uh, but those who alone do, will not move the needle enough to where we'll get big changes in, in uh, uh, that we won't reach some ceiling effect, if you will, on something like the NAEP, right? That the NAEP is a fair measure of what you know about all sorts of things that's on the NAEP. And the one way you get that to improve is kids need to know more about different things that they, that they read about, that background knowledge is a critical factor in whether you understand what you read. And so uh, we're beginning to think about teaching reading within the context of also teaching uh, knowledge that, that uh, science and social studies and uh, other subject matters are critical to improving reading comprehension. And so what some people are thinking about now is rather than measuring reading comprehension on something like the NAEP or the others, is measure kids' ability to read and write about subject matter that they've been taught during the previous year. Then you get, then you get an idea of not only reading and writing ability, but you get an idea of how much they've learned about the, the curriculum and so forth. I think that makes and, great sense. And I know you have a recent paper on that as well that you wrote. Was that, who was that for? American? The, uh, the American Educator yes. is, uh, is a, a bit about, a bit yeah. about that. Talk yeah. about uh, reading comprehension. Yeah. Um, and some of the thoughts about about comprehension, it, and it you know it was largely coming out of Lark and yeah. seeing the you know the how just how complicated it was to to try to improve comprehension that uh, kind of led me to I, I guess my training in cognitive science uh, got pushed aside by the you know kind of the thinking around reading right I mean. We, we did simplify comprehension for many years in reading. You know, we measured it with a test. Yes, right? exactly. And, and uh, um, I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, seeing it in operation there, uh, you know, was an eye-opener to me. It was like almost an aha moment mm -hmm. for me in terms of what one needed to do. So. Absolutely. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's got me thinking a lot too, working with schools that, that do have very stellar word reading curricula. And even schools that focus on children with dyslexia, they're so good at teaching a child to read words and they do it. Even if it's a bit laborious, even if you have the carryover effect of having spelling problems and having, you know, some fluency or rate difficulty those children are really learning how to read over time, but they're still struggling in reading comprehension. So them saying, what's the missing piece? What are we doing? You know, what's happening here? And these are 
sometimes families that do have really strong knowledge, but then they have that under that child has the underlying deficit in language comprehension and and you see people chase after working memory you see people chase chase after executive function but really a lot of that is language and even those skills we know language is a huge factor to it so i I think that you know such a missing piece you know even even the language part should should be uh you know knowledge based you know somebody somebody i remember i gave a talk one time a speech pathologist wanted to know what materials to use to teach uh, language uh, mm-hmm. knowledge and and you know the answer was whatever materials they're using in the school yes. go get the children's books that they yes. the textbook for the yes. for the science or social studies and use that to teach the language teach the language of the book at the same time you're teaching you know the subject matter that's being taught within within the book mm-hmm. right? and and you're you're more likely to learn to understand the meaning of a word if it's if it's in the context mm-hmm. uh, that's supported by uh, you know the, the knowledge that's presented in that in that text mm-hmm. yeah I know uh, on the podcast I had with Elena plant she said that you know the podcast was on assessment but she said that speech with language pathologists will look to a test like the cell for the clinical evaluation of language fundamentals for you know, therapy goals. And she tells them, don't look there. That's for diagnostic. You need to go into the classroom, grab a worksheet. That's what you do to get a functional language goals and helping them in, you know, there too. So we've kind of, we've followed this trajectory a bit. So we talked with Iowa study and Lark, and I know you had another study in there with Mindy. Uh, I wanted you to talk a bit about your newest uh, project with Harvard and um, the Zuckerberg Foundation and, and how that's going. Yeah, that's been a, a another. God, you think about these just lucky opportunities. Oh, lucky. You know, a phone call came one mm. afternoon uh, from John Gabarelli at uh, MIT asking if uh, I might be interested in working with uh, him and people from Harvard on a, developing some screening as- assessments to help with uh, identify kids at risk for reading and language problems. <coughs> they had gotten a grant from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative to. Uh, to try to improve uh, reading in, in children. And the project got named Reach Every Reader Project. Uh, and uh, it's uh, run uh, out, of, out of Harvard, Liz City, uh, and the School of Education there is, is the uh, primary investigator on it. Um, and so Yakov and I, Yakov Petra and I, and our team have been uh, developing a screening tools uh, but also in the process, learning a lot more about screening, about assessment as it relates to dyslexia. It's this project that led us to develop that uh, uh, cumulative risk and, and resilience model. Um, and uh, so we, it, we, we've got a bit of work done, but the pandemic has really been problematic for us because uh, we've needed to collect data in the schools and, and with the pandemic, that's been shut down. Uh, but we have we have gone online and have collected data virtually, and we're we're back in the schools uh, now. And so hopefully in a in a few years we'll have um, some uh, screening measures uh, uh, to, to identify uh, dyslexia. And I know you're interested in identifying uh, DLD, and I was interested right from the beginning. So. Uh, I put in about as many measures that measure uh, lang- early language ability as measure uh, uh, word reading ability. And the nice thing about these assessments is that they're adaptive so that within 
maybe as few as seven items, you can get an estimate of the child's performance because you, you kind of bounce around the ability by, by your particular response to a given item determines what next item you get is. And so it'll be easier or harder and you can quickly get an estimate of language ability uh, doing that. And if you have three or four measures, uh, you can better pinpoint language ability because you know, for the most part, early on where we're working, it's kind of a single skill um, and, and or, a skill, uh, or ability, I say, I don't really want to call language skill. Um, and so uh, we can get a pretty good estimate of that within a short period of time. So hopefully in the next few years, we'll have a, we'll have a measure of, of that. Oh, that's great. And yeah. I'm, I'm being mindful of our time, but I have two final questions I always ask everyone. And that is, what are you working on now you're most excited about? Yeah, I think the most exciting thing I'm most excited about at the moment related to uh, this Reach, Reach Every Reader study is how we deal with the diversity uh, within the schools. We talked about that a little bit earlier, but we're doing some of this testing out in California, which has a huge population of kids that that their home language is something other than English. So they come to school with varying levels of English. But well, how do you uh, uh, develop a screening, a set of screening materials that will allow you to identify uh, which of those kids are at risk for uh, later reading problems? And we, we know just because you have another language doesn't mean you're gonna have, it doesn't mean that it's that problem that, or I wouldn't get to call it problem, that issue that leads mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. having a, a reading disability. And so we're working with uh, some, uh, Lily Duran from, from University of Oregon. And, and our team here is working to thinking about whether we can uh, use uh, measures of, of their home language to give us some idea of uh, likelihood. Um, and how do we work through those problems? Uh, we're also, um, I'm working uh, with Lisa Fitton and uh, 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 Keisha uh, Johnson, Jackson, Jackson at um, a word reading problem. She'll kill me. <laughs> I think it's Johnson. I do think it's Johnson. <laughs> Johnson. Uh, uh, well, you know I'll the word it. finding problems. I have. Oh yeah, I, I know. Me too. I can't remember your name. Me too. <laughs> uh, but but they're they're are working on it uh, so that they can use a sentence repetition task that help us identify language problems that aren't. Uh, uh, identified on the basis of dialect. Mm -hmm. So sentences that are sensitive to the dialect, mm -hmm. sentences that aren't, and we can look at differential performance to, to uh, uh, prevent dialect from impacting our judgments about language mm. impairment. Mm, that's very interesting. We've been working uh, with our school partners as well on this because, you know, in the grant I have where we're identifying uh, DLD language impairment, we go in and we immediately rule out anyone who's not a primary English speaker. And in our districts, that can be 50% of children. And yeah. we know that's not right. You know, yeah. we do. And so they have varied levels of English proficiency. And one thing we've been working with our district on is looking at a response to intervention. So they're all getting English stimulation. And we look at how they perform on the measure, you know, let's say fall and then look at winter. And it's the change in yeah. their English proficiency, it's just one measure. It doesn't mean English proficiency is the key to anything here. That's not what I'm saying. It's just a way to measure their language learning ability. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think you're right there. That that's, would be a useful indication of, of perhaps risk if you're slow to learn 
learn English. But it's tricky for us because you know that district has over 80 languages spoken. So we yeah. don't have the luxury of going in and having every single language measured. Yeah. Uh, which I wish we did, but you know, that's just not realistic. So I think getting some of those ideas is yeah, very helpful. A lot more diversity than there was when we were working in the Iowa project. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So and true. So, I mean, so that's the most exciting part mm-hmm. for me. I'm really enjoying that. It's mm-hmm. expanding the way. You know, I'm learning things about topics that I didn't know that much about mm-hmm. and so forth. So. And you're getting in the nitty gritty in the schools too. I mean, yeah. more than you probably have in the past, really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, getting to see some of the barriers that they have. And I'm excited that you're uh, interested in the DLD screening. You know, it's funny because you got me interested in DLD screening and then you worked more on the dyslexia aspect and I went off and worked with the DLD and then we came back around. So yeah, <laughs> never, and, it, it never and now leaves. you're convincing me. And, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, I'm telling people they're, if they're going to develop a screener for dyslexia, they're going to have to pay attention to DLD because those kids are twice uh, <sighs> Uh, impaired, if you will, they're going to have problems in word reading, but also in comprehension because of language and language problems. So. Right. Especially the ones that, you know, uh, the it's not a majority, but a large group. We, you know, the estimates, right, like you said, are, you know, 50, I always say 50% as an average, but of those kids will have typical word reading. So they look, okay. they look, quote unquote, okay. And then over time, when they aren't doing well, uh, unfortunately, they're called lazy or inattentive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, sometimes they're called late emerging poor readers, but we know they've had the language difficulties all along. So trying to get them to focus on that language screening ahead of time. It's such a great opportunity because schools are so focused focused on screening period that, you know, it's, it's great to think about screening for other aspects as well. I have a doctoral student who's focused on screening for ADHD as well. Um, In Massachusetts, our law actually says screening for learning disabilities, such as dyslexia and others. So we have a bit of a hook with our districts too, to think about other uh, difficulties that would cause learning problems over time. I mean, one good thing about the screening tools is they're alerting us to the individual differences that we should pay yes. attention to anyway, right? Yes. So, you know, the, the teachers are, are now seeing the types of things and, and kids that, that uh, I mean, they, they already have pretty good insight into mm-hmm. what kids are going to uh, have, have trouble. And, and, yeah. and we use teacher uh, feedback in our, in our uh, early identification uh, uh, algorithms or whatever. Uh, but this is expanding that the, the knowledge of what, what uh, uh, child behaviors are indicative of risk. I think you're exactly right. And also this work has, uh, you know, got me interested in implementation science and really thinking about those partnerships and listening to our stakeholders, uh, educators, teachers, they know best and learning, you know, creating, and I know you're doing this with Reach Every Reader, you're creating an instrument that will work and fit into the school environment. And so many times we would create things outside of the school environment, ask clinicians and teachers to administrators to fit it in. Uh, Whereas if you create it, with those partners, uh, you're more likely, I was just reading a quote yesterday, actually thinking about implementation science that really got me. It said it it was a study that was done showing what research is implemented in practice. It really had nothing to do with the effect size or the value, even the value of the the research, nothing about how effective it was for outcomes. It had everything to do with how well it matched the practice setting. So if it matches, it's put into practice. Exactly. I mean, that's one of the things that I've worried about with a screener is it has to have good face validity. Yes. All right. The, the people in the schools have to recognize mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. as as potentially being worthwhile or it'll just 
it, it won't be used. And, right. and, and that's, that's not a fault of the schools. That's, no. that's human behavior is yes. that, that, uh, what seems to make sense to us is what we're gra- what we gravitate towards. So. Absolutely, and I think there's now more frameworks out there, a science around this. So now we can use those frameworks to do better. Now that we that we know. Um, my last question for you. Thank you again for this time. It's been fantastic. Uh, what is your favorite book from childhood or now? Yeah, I saw you're going to ask me that question. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, for being a poor reader early on, I'm a pretty avid reader. And, yes, you are. Uh, and I don't think I started reading very much until I was out of high school. I mean, I maybe have read Great Expectations because I was forced to in, in, uh, uh, in, in school, but uh, uh, I loved to read. And I know you and I always talked about the books we loved. I, uh, we, we were always connected that way in terms yeah. of liking the same books and the same mm-hmm. movies and so yeah. forth. And, and we'd come in and tell you, I just read this book. Yes. And so forth. But my problem is I don't remember <laughs> the titles of the yes. but but I can tell you my my favorite book is called The Land Remembered, and it's a, a historical fiction of of Florida, uh, and uh, uh, it's just a wonderful. Every time anybody I've ever told read uh, about the book, and and I've given multiple copies to other people, and and you kind of have to have a Florida connection to appreciate it, but but it's a a. a, a a wonderful book about uh, what Florida was like in the 1900s, early 1900s, 1800s. And, oh, wow. And, uh, uh, a great little, a great story. So. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I know you turned me on to Pillars of the Earth and, and we really yeah, liked I, Ghost yeah, that Map. that was one of our favorite one? books. Yeah. Ghost Map. Oh, I thought oh, so about good. that. For you Such guys listening one. to this, Ghost Map is yeah. just a wonderful book oh, about yeah. a guy who figured out uh, what caused cholera. Yep, exactly. Right? And and uh, how long it took him to convince his other mm-hmm. uh, fellows, fellow uh, uh, medical mm. uh, people that uh, what caused it. And I, I talk about that in my in my uh, doctoral seminar about confirmation bias and how <laughs> how they, they were so convinced it had something to do with the stink. Yes, uh, in the they thought it was yes. in London, right? Yep. They thought and, you could smell this, it and get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this, it, it took years for them to, to uh, uh, he had the proof yes. right there in the, in the well. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> right there yeah. in the well. <laughs> yeah, what's the guy's name that wrote that? Oh, uh, that I, I'll have to look it up no, and put it no, in our Johnson. resources. His last name is Johnson. Okay. Wrote that book. Yeah. Yeah. It was um, really good. I, I yeah, yeah, I definitely I'm also I'm still an avid reader and now they have the apps you can use. So like the good reads, you can um, now that's how I keep track of my books now because it's hard for me to know too, you know. Yeah. Um but well, yeah, that's we've got great. still got a fair light size library here. We we give a lot of books away back mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. you know the, to the library and other places uh, that when they have drop book drives and so yes. forth. But we still do keep a lot of books around because yeah. You know, one of the nice things about having a limited memory is you can go back and read that book over again. It's That's like right. a new experience. <laughs> That's right. Totally. <laughs> I've, read, I've, I've read Land Remembered twice, and I oh, probably yeah. another couple of years I'll be I'll be good to go to read it again. That's I don't right. remember much of it. You'll be like, oh, I just remember this was such a good book. <laughs> I've never read, I've never read a book twice, but I want to. Oh yeah, it's kind That's of silly. Great. I mean, but I should. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The longer the longer you. The longer you have between times, the, 
the more you forgot, it seems like a new read. So. Yeah, I'm sure it would seem like that for me for many of the books, especially I read back in the doctoral program, which was a long time ago. Yeah, but you know, your 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 uh, uh, your the way you think about books, yes, and, and it changed too, and so mm-hmm. that may have been a really good book for you at that mm-hmm. moment in time, and mm-hmm. where you were, and it might not be anymore. I don't know if I read Pillars of Earth now, I would like yeah. it as much as I did when I read it back then. But. That's true. Yeah, that right goes right back to that reading comprehension, that interactive model, right? Or yeah. that where it's like what you bring to the book yeah. at the time is so different. Yeah, it is. It's yeah, that's so true. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> I know you got to head out and I just really appreciated chatting with you. Yeah, well, it's been wonderful. Definitely. I, I, I'm sorry that it took, uh, I, I think, uh, 39 episodes before <laughs> you and I got together to, to talk. But, uh, you know, maybe we can do another one. And sometime in the future as well. I would love that. This is a great one, though, to get me back in the saddle because it's been a while. So I'm glad yeah, to be back yeah, with well, this welcome one. back. I, Thank you. I, I'm <laughs> glad to be one of the early ones when you come back. Thank you. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you, making the world a better place by helping one child at a time. All right. What's going on? What was that? Uh, that was a dog coming down our metal steps. Oh, no. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.